0: You're listening to Live with the League, part of the We Love Where You Live podcast series brought to you by the Michigan Municipal League.
1: All right. Looks like we're all set to go. Hello, everyone. I am Matt Bach, Assistant Director of Strategic Communications for the Michigan Municipal League. And this is uh, the newly named uh, Live with the League. Uh, uh, Every other week, uh, conversation that we have with our uh, legislative team and and other guests Uh, this week. We are very happy to have two guests with us today to talk about an issue that I know a lot of our communities are dealing with right now, which is the um, the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. So uh, we're very happy to have on with us, uh, Dr. Bobby McCamala. He's a uh, Flint physician and also the current president of the Michigan State Medical Society. And then we also have uh, Brandon Fournier of the uh, Schiffman uh, Fournier Law Firm. And he's gonna be talking about some of the legal issues that he's seen among his clients, some of the concerns that people have uh, legal wise regarding the vaccine uh, rollout. So welcome, thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Bobby and, and Brandon for joining us.
2: Good to be here, thank you for having thank us. Very much.
1: All right, and then after we talk about the vaccine, we will bring our Lansing team on, who is on standby right now and talk about some of the legislative issues. Uh, the lame duck activity that happened, and then of course the upcoming start of the 101st legislature, which starts later this week. So um, Dr. McCamala, I did want to start with you. uh, Talk us a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the rollout of the vaccine and what are you seeing uh, generally, you know, regarding some of the skepticism that we're hearing out there from people as far as some reluctancy uh, to getting the vaccine.
2: Yeah, thank you. And I guess some of my initial observations, um, since this is now probably in, in week four of uh, of the vaccine deployment, um, there seems to be in sort of observing my social circles, my professional circles, sort of two schools of thought, that that school of thought where they, people can't wait to get it, you know, and can't wait for their number to be called or for their category to come up. And then people that are extremely skeptical of it um, and are hesitating. And, and in that group, there are some people that are, trying to learn about it um, trying to make themselves more knowledgeable about vaccine development this particular vaccine development and then also that group that says no way i'd much rather get the infection than get this vaccine mm. um, and and as you alluded to there are there are certain populations um, within our overall population that have a skepticism of vaccine that's sort of based a vaccinations that's based on a historical experience you know particularly the the black community there's there's a history of a problem with losing trust with that community as it relates to vaccines, and it dates back to you know one of the most famous sort of uh, dropping the ball and losing that trust experiences that we've had as a country relates to um, the treatment of syphilis patients in Tuskegee. So mm-hmm. this is uh, just just a, a quick little history refresher. So over the course of about thirty to forty years, um, there's a, a group there that you know it it's uh, it's just not not a good thing right and so you know it's uh it it wouldn't be it just shouldn't be doing that you know when that happens so you know it it makes sense that we should hold it and, and slowly gradually a little bit a little bit a little bit and sort of get off of it but it's uh it's it's very difficult to do that
1: so that that skepticism you talk about the historical part how do you, uh, particularly among the African-American community, I'm sure there's other, you know, it's, it's become kind of a political issue, too, for some people. Um, is, it, is it for the COVID-19, is it because of the, just the, the how quickly it was formed? Was that, is that part of it, too? Because people are like, well, it didn't, you know, the long-term effects aren't really known because, you know, COVID you know hit America around March and they developed the vaccine at kind of record pace. Is that part of it, too? And what can you, as a, as a physician, how do you try to address that issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the main thing is that we have to, you know, let people know how we are working to build up their knowledge about about the, the virus itself and what the benefit is of treating somebody against um, that virus by giving them that, that, that um, next accumulation of knowledge. It's not the kind of thing that we can include somebody to take a percent uh, uh, decision to do that without giving them the background to accomplish it. And so we have to give them that straight that straight up discussion so that they can make an interested decision about it, as opposed to forcing them without the explanation. And that's why I think that, you know, we have to give it to those people that are ready and then convince those people that are not to learn that experience.
1: And I know that you, I think one or two days after the vaccine was being made available, made available to uh Hospitals that you yourself uh, got the vaccine. I don't know if you've had the second dose yet, but I did see on your Facebook page you got the first dose. Is that part of the kind of the education campaign?
0: Yeah.
2: Yep. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's even from the beginning of all of this, I didn't want to convince people to do something that I myself am not willing to do. And so, actually, I finished my second dose um, just this past Friday. So three days ago, I got the second dose, so my final dose of the uh, of the vaccine. So, you know, I did it, and you know, there are people that have fear of it, but I can say that, yes, on the first day, I had a little bit of soreness where I got the injection and a little bit of soreness from a lymph node, and the second one wasn't as bad, and sort of convince people from my own experience, as opposed to some generic stuff that's out there, that the, um, the, the, the consequence of the vaccination is yet much better than the consequence of an, an infection and then the chance of needing to be admitted to the hospital because of it. And given those two, that it makes much more sense to take the uh, the vaccination um, fallout.
1: So, so you're definitely thinking it is worth it, a little bit of the discomfort. Uh, you'd much rather have the vaccine than have the virus, it sounds like.
2: Absolutely, yep. I mean, for multiple reasons. I mean, one, you know, soreness for a month or two, or for a day or two, versus dealing with the consequence of the infection. You know, we, we've seen people that have long-term pulmonary issues, long-term um, uh, kidney issues, you know, needing uh, possible dialysis and po- possible even a, a kidney transplant to cardiac, you know, the, the decrease in the contraction of the heart ability. So yes, ninety some percent of people will have some mild infections and, and get over it, but 10% end up having some severity. Relative to a soreness for a day or two from a vaccine, it's really sort of a no-brainer. You know, getting the vaccine is much safer than getting the infection.
1: Okay. Now, I know many of our communities are, are have well, I guess they have different groups of people as far as the vaccine rolling out. There's like a 1A and and different groups. And a lot of our communities have first responders, uh, police, and firefighters, and, and different things. What would you, what advice would you give to a, a community that you know, like a mayor or city council member that's trying to convince their employees, but also eventually trying to to convince our general public um, that that, that they should do this.
2: Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I think kind of like I alluded to earlier, when you have a leadership position, you know, whether it's the mayor or manager or, you know, other sort of elected people, people that have an influence by their own action, then we should lead by example, right? So we have an opportunity when we have the attention of people to to share our own thought process, right? Even if at the beginning of it, it wasn't something that a mayor was particularly keen on getting, but after their research, they got it and and they're happy that they did it. This is what should be shared, right? People want to know, they don't want to be told what to do, but then not have the person that's doing that, not do it themselves. Um, And so I think that we should appeal based on our own action, but also remind people that sometimes when we do that, Sure, if I get the infection being young and healthy, I might make it through just fine. But what about the person that can't get the vaccine because they have a history of, a, of an immune system problem or history to react to other vaccines? I want to make sure that I don't spread it to them. And the most effective way to do that is by getting vaccinated. So this is what leaders in the community should do is remind people that it's not just about preventing the infection from settling into me, it's preventing that infection from being spread through me to somebody that really can't afford to get sick. So not just for us, but to protect the community itself.
1: That's a really good point because I think I have a friend that said, you know, they're allergic to eggs. So oftentimes when they get the vaccine, they ask, that's one of the first things they ask, any vaccine are allergic to eggs. So that's a good point that that you're helping them really by getting it yourself.
2: Right, exactly. We need, you know, 70, 80% of people to get this vaccine. The people that can't are the one because of an allergy or something like that should be in that 20 to 30% that don't. But the people that can, need to get to that level. Um, and so there's gotta be a good reason not to get it. Um, and that's why, you know, doing it on behalf of those people that cannot is a good thing.
1: Okay. Now, um, you're, as I mentioned at the start, you are a president of this, um, uh, MSMS <laughs> MS, medical state, no, Michigan state medical society. I got you it. Got it. Yep. Um, and, uh, what, uh, where where are things at as far as the vaccine rollout? I know the governor uh, had a press conference recently talking about this. What stage are we at in the process? And someone asked specifically: Are city council members are they now el- eligible, or what? You know, what phase they fall in?
2: Yeah. So right now, we're so that just today, the governor's sort of announcement that that the elderly can get it; it's not just the healthcare workers is is just been announced. So over the over is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the the reality is that while that is now allowed the practical aspect of calling the Genesee County health department, which is where I happen to live, you know, they are not ready. They don't have enough of the vaccine and enough of a deployment plan to get it to those people that are eligible. So if you aren't in the category of healthcare workers or the elderly, right? So let's say that you're the 50 year old mayor, you know, you're not going to be in that category that's eligible right now. But I imagine, though, that as other vaccines become available, because right now we just have two, but there are another couple that should be, you know, within a week become available, that within a month or so, we will be able to expand the, the categories of people that are able to get it. So, you know, I think that we should encourage people to do it, but still sort of do it in the way that it minimizes the risk for particular populations first, and then we will get to the point within a month or so, I think that that people like the mayors can do that.
1: Okay. But if you're a mayor over 65 yes. and you're in a county that has the vaccine available, you might be able to get it now.
2: Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So not because you're the mayor, but because you're over 65. Exactly. Okay. Right.
1: Yep. And then uh, someone said, I heard about registering with the county health department, but I don't know what that means. or some counties, can you go on now at some counties and yep. start
2: registering? Yep. So, you know, uh, the the Genesee County Health Department, for example, sent out something on Thursday, I believe, of last week that says log into the site and give us the information and we will contact you based on your demographics and your age and, and that sort of thing about when you can come in. So, so absolutely, you should contact your health department and let them know that you want to get the vaccine, they will look at your qualifications to get it and then they will notify you about when but again, you know, ideally, we would have enough people to administer the vaccine and enough vaccine available that we could get all of those requests handled within a week. The reality is that they're already booking into February for Genesee County um, because there are so many. So I think again, as more vaccines come out and, and we get through this first phase of sort of sorting this out, we'll be able to um, accommodate those requests much faster. But yes, right now we're looking at uh, you know uh, several weeks out still for those people that are signing up today.
1: Okay, I do want to get to Brandon next, but I have one more question for you, Doctor, and that is uh, that came in from the chat. Can vaccinated people be carriers?
2: Yeah, so so I would say the short answer to that question is no, right? Because you need the virus to replicate in you to then spread it. So if that virus is immediately finding my immune system, ready to attack it and kill it because I'm vaccinated, I'm not going to be able to spread that virus because there just isn't enough virus that survived because immediately my immune system takes care of it. So, you know, it's still a good idea to wear a mask just because if you're between the first shot and the second shot, you know, we're used to it. It doesn't hurt to do that. Uh, but I would say the answer to that question is no. Okay.
1: All right, uh, Brandon, I do want to bring you in uh, now. Um, we talked about some of the concern people have as a legal counsel that represents multiple different communities. How uh, big of an issue is this right now with, uh, you know, people reluctancy to get the vaccines and, and the issues that our city leaders are dealing with, or community leaders are dealing with?
3: Thank you very much, Matt. Our experience has been very similar to what uh, the doctor had outlined. We're seeing kind of two tracks of folks, um, those who are ready, willing and eager to participate voluntarily through the one, uh, first one category, which was primarily EMT firefighters. Um, 1A, which will begin law enforcement in earnest this week, Uh, we're hoping to see a higher uh, percentage of people participate, but we've seen about 50 to 60% compliance with those who've been uh, voluntarily able to receive the vaccine. Uh, The general approach approach at this time has been through encouragement and voluntary participation. Uh, That's been aided by the limited amount of supply compared to the amount of demand that we're seeing from folks out there. Um, So, the more effective means has been through encouragement and education, and that has generally taken uh, the amount of vaccine that's been made available to the communities that we represent.
0: Okay.
1: Is is there anything a community can do from a legal standpoint to encourage the vaccine, or obviously you can't require it, if, particularly if they want to exempt themselves out for, I'm assuming, religious or medical reasons? Are there things that communities can do or should be doing in that?
3: The EEOC came out with some general guidance in mid-December. One of the things they did say is that an employer may require the vaccination. We're not seeing that being the the approach to take in Michigan for a public sector employer. Uh, One of the key talking points to focus on is the state of Michigan is not requiring its employees to be vaccinated. Um, I think over time you could see an adjustment occurring. Um, There are certain vaccinations that, say, uh, firefighter EMT personnel have to have. And I'll defer this uh, to a scientific perspective to the doctor, but uh, presently it's still in an experimental status. So there's not any legal precedent in Michigan for a public employer requiring its employees to take a vaccination that's under a provisional approval like these are. We believe that they should be encouraged. Uh, We think it's important to discuss the advantages of the vaccination just as as has been outlined. Uh, But what we're starting to see as it's been almost a month of rollout as time goes on, uh, as it becomes the more normal standard and proof of vaccination becomes a requirement uh, for a multitude of factors, uh, the interest in vaccination tends to increase. And it seems to be one thing, avoiding a direct conflict with uh, labor and employment beyond just education, uh, we believe that uh, the percentage of voluntary participation will reach the point needed.
1: Okay. I got a couple questions uh, right at the top for you, Brandon. And that is, are employers allowed to ask staff if they have received the vaccine or is that considered protected personal information?
3: Um, it is. The specific issue of vaccination is not a uh, under HIPAA protection, so you are able to ask that question. Um, I would uh, obviously uh, suggest that it be a highly tailored question and not something broad from that perspective.
1: Okay. And there are any issues with requiring vaccine certification for participants and recreational activities similar to schools requiring vaccines for participation?
3: At present, I would say that that is not the standard and would not suggest putting that uh, benchmark in place at present. I could see that occurring over the next six to nine to 12 months, but right now the percentage of rollout has been so limited uh, that we're not seeing those, uh, those requirements in schools or in recreational programs or for employers generally.
1: Okay. All right. Um, what would you say, uh, Brandon? If um, uh, you kind of touched on a little bit what a community leader can do to to get the vac- to encourage the vaccine uh, potentially once it's available to them to get it themselves. Um, there was a question earlier. I think either one of you could answer was uh, because our city councils and mayors are they now in this phase where you can get it? And I think the answer is no, unless you're 65 or older, then you fall in the elderly group, the uh, older group. Um, So the question is, uh, is there something uh, they can do now to be encouraging people to take the vaccine?
3: I think the educational uh, campaigns are most critical. Um, I do have a few communities where the manager or administrator has been able to participate at the decision of the local health department because of their function in managing law enforcement or emergency medical services. Relatively limited, but it has happened because of those direct uh, obligations based on the size of the employer. Uh, also just discussing the current standard of things. The, uh, the Federal uh, Families First Coronavirus Leak Act did expire on December 31st, um, as well as the current status of the workers' comp resumption for first responders expiring on March 31st. So just advising them of the current status of those additional benefits and legal regulations, and where the evolution of the pandemic is going, I think is a is a helpful thing.
1: Okay, is there anything they could do, maybe more instead of the encouragement, uh, maybe more on the, I guess, lack of a better word, punitive side, saying, uh, you know, for those that uh, that don't get, it, maybe you can cut additional sick time or reducing pay, or is there anything like that that you guys have seen or, or what you've been asked about?
3: I'd be very careful in in some some of the direct consequences for not participating at this time. Okay. The the pointed education is key to point out that we've made the vaccine available to all the members of say the emergency EMS side, fire response side. And because of this, we may be reviewing how we're processing some of these presumptive workers' compensation claims, or uh, we as a community are not uh, going to be providing additional COVID-related sick leave benefits, uh, because we have had these other tools made available to us.
1: Okay, uh, a kind of real uh, a medical question just came in uh, from the doctor. If you've had COVID in the last 90 days, should you get the
2: vaccine? Yeah, so the, the short answer to that question is yes. Um, and the reason is the antibodies that are created from exposure to the virus itself are basically supplemented by antibodies that you get that are created due to exposure to the vaccine. Um, so yes, they are both helpful, uh, but you wanna make sure that you are recovered from the infection. So a good two weeks out from when you tested positive for COVID, make sure that you are healthy enough so that that way if you have another immune reaction when you do get the vaccine, it's not a double whammy as far as affecting how you feel. But yes, they're, they're complementary to each other.
1: Okay, um, a related question probably for Brandon, um, under phase 1B are employees who support police and fire departments Uh, frontline staff who are considered essential such as dispatchers and IT support considered to be part of that I guess that phase 1b group?
3: Uh, I would say they may be Um, we have a a number of employers that have made the decision which we encourage to include those folks on their list to be vaccinated through the local health departments Uh, as long as you're transparent about it and there's available vaccine I have had some cases where those people have been approved for vaccination so um, I would certainly provide that information to Um, your local health department or a vaccining agency.
1: Okay. Now, uh, one other question. um, What about restricting uh, business travel for those that choose not to get vaccinated? Is there anything you can do from a a city standpoint uh, on that?
3: Well, again, I think over the uh, 2021 calendar year, what we're going to see is the extent of travel through commercial airlines or whatever it may be is going to require proof of vaccination. So I think over time, that issue will kind of work itself out uh, from that perspective. The employer does have a right uh, to to seek a requirement of vaccination for some of its organized workforce, but they're going to issue a demand to bargain over something like that. You're going to find yourself in a a negotiations standpoint for a a very preliminary status of the vaccine. Um, So at present, I think encouragement continues to remain the most key component from an employer's perspective to ensure that employees participate in the vaccination process.
1: Okay. Uh, and Doctor, we had a follow-up question for you. Is it two weeks after infection or two weeks after fever-free for 24 hours? I think that relates to what we're talking about if you are infected, should you get the vaccine?
2: Yeah, so considering that some people won't have a fever at all, you know, for that for that population that just barely has, you know, a little bit of sniffles, maybe no symptoms at all, it's sort of two weeks from exposure of that positive test, 10 to 14 days, basically. Uh, But if you're running a a fever, then yes, I would say that, yes, the clock starts at that point when the fever dissipates and you're fever free about 10 days after that. So on average, though, it's still going to be about the same, about two weeks from the initial diagnosis. Uh, And there's that small segment of the population that will continue to be contagious afterwards. But this is sort of a general rule of thumb that I would apply to 90 percent of people.
1: Okay. And then a kind of follow-up question on that. Uh, should we expect to have receive annual or periodic boosters? So moving beyond the two shots, do you see something happening down the road?
2: Yeah, just from what we know about the immunity already. So now, you know, the first cases have been about a year ago and we yeah. see that that immunity drops. So it's more like tetanus than it is like chickenpox, right? Mm-hmm. Like chickenpox, you get it and you're good for life once you get that vaccine. Tetanus is something you need to have repeated. So it sounds like this is something that has a waning immunity over time. And so if I had to bet, I would bet that, yes, this is something that we will likely need to have boosters for. But I don't think that it's going to be the entire population that starts with another sort of wave of infections three years from now. We can do that in a staggered fashion and not be filling up our hospital and ICU beds and ventilators because it's happening sort of randomly across society as opposed to one big peak.
1: Okay. I do want to bring a couple of folks, I want Brandon and the doctors to stay on for a second here to ask our legislative team. Um, I understand there are some, there was some legislative activity that happened over uh, the lame duck um, about uh, the give community options in terms of COVID or exposure for frontline workers. Uh, can you guys, uh, Chris, I think it's Chris and Harrison perhaps, could talk a little bit about that issue?
4: Go ahead Harrisana.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah. So we saw the passage of PA 339, which was Senate Bill 1258. This is a bill that we were engaged in over Blame duck because prior to the availability of the vaccine, it was required that all individuals, if they came in contact with somebody who was COVID positive, to quarantine for 14 days. So this is very standard across the board. We've seen this in schools and general work employment. Um, and any sort of events. And it's important to quarantine when you are exposed, but what was happening in our local communities is that we had very critical municipal services that are often functioned by few people. I noticed Elaine's comment in the chat talking about how her water plant is only serviced by four folks. That's consistent everywhere. And so what what ended up happening was that if one person was exposed to COVID-19, the entire team would have to quarantine, thus that service being hindered from its full operation in the community. So with this new PA 339, we were excited to include a clause that allowed for operations that are critical to the continuation of public health and public safety to continue at the discretion of the DHHS director, and they are required to make those designations. So after the passage of that bill, which happened at the end of last year, the league submitted a letter to to the director to discuss all the various services that are provided by our communities and why it's important to move urgently on those designations. And I want to shout out the city of Grand Ledge as well for submitting their own letter, as well as many of the other communities who consistently helped us advocate to make sure that this was a frontline issue for the legislature this year. So we're anticipating seeing those designations come out this week. Municipal services aren't the only one, so that's why it's been taking a little bit of time. This expands out to transportation and many of the other industries and services that were put on the table during lame duck to be included in this exemption. So it's gonna be really huge for our communities, many who we know that have already been trying to navigate how to keep critical services like road clearing, going, utilities. And so it will be really helpful to alleviate you know, that strain our communities and continue these services that actually help us preempt more transmission of COVID-19 virus.
4: Okay, thank you. One Go other ahead, thing that in the bill, I was gonna say, and in, in, you know, Harrison, I really worked work hard on this piece too, was, the the original act that was set up in the fall had a had a, a, a you know one size fits all 14 day quarantine period. We've obviously seen the the CDC kind of evolve some of of their uh, their criteria in in terms of when we should be quarantining and how long for. So the bill actually now has opened it up and is a little more flexible and allows some some matching with those those uh, national guidelines and and health related guidelines as opposed to just putting a straight day, a 14-day period in the statute. Okay.
1: Uh, Dr. Bobby and Brandon, do you think that one law will help? And is there any other legislation that you think might be helpful that you would like to see out there to help our communities in this?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that will help because it will allow people to continue, again, if if there's only four people that can manage a particular department of of the city of Flint, for example, then obviously we don't want the function of that department to come to a grinding halt because those people are staying home for 14 days. We need the ability to sort of keep the city running um, and yet make sure we're minimizing the spread of infection. Ideally, we shouldn't need a law to do that. Ideally, we should be able to get quick turnaround testing to test all four of those people to prove that they aren't contagious as opposed to risking that they are contagious and sending them off to work anyway, right? And, and we have that. so. So we need to continue to focus on getting tests done in an expedient fashion. You know, I've tested a couple of thousand people but it's been the PCR testing that takes three or four days to come back. What we want in this situation when there's four people in a critical department in a city is we want less than 24 hour PCR testing. So highly accurate, but fast turnaround. And and that's not necessarily something a law will accomplish but it's certainly something that organization and coordination of testing capacity with testing need will accomplish.
1: Okay. Uh, Brandy, did you have any other, from a legal standpoint, any other things that you would like to see or have seen?
2: Just a couple of quick points. Uh, uh,
3: My hat's off to the league as always in terms of adjusting that state law in terms of the mandatory quarantine periods. There's still some adjustments that need to be made. And I know the health and human services director has the ability to make distinctions uh, for job functions and job classification. So I'm sure they're going to continue to work at that. As it relates to the vaccination, generally speaking, you know, from our whole, representing local units of government, uh, that in the event that the uh, requirement is determined to be necessary for vaccination, it's our hope that that will be done at a state level. Um, so the, the rules of the game are equal across the state and not a patchwork for townships, cities, et cetera. I know the current status of things is unlikely in that regard, um, but as the months turn into the
1: summer and the fall again,
3: perhaps the state will take the lead um, and that will make it a much easier for our members.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, One other kind of question, uh, as I let uh, the doctor and Brandon go about their day. Um, Is there any best practices you recommend or or websites or resources for people that may have questions about the vaccine? Uh, I believe Betsy's going to put one, a a link to the CDC uh, best practices page. Any other things you recommend or or suggest?
2: You know, I I mean, I've, I've gotten a lot of information directly from the FDA you know, as far as ingredients. So there was a lot of concern. I got a lot of questions in the past 10 days about what exactly is in the Pfizer vaccine that I received. And that's all available on the FDA website. You know, exactly which chemicals are in the lipid capsule, which, you know, which capsule and which elements are the uh, uh, preservative nature of the vaccine. So the FDA website, as far as what's in the ingredients is is what I also found quite helpful. And as anybody on participating today knows, you know, Google can be your friend (laughs) or it can be your foe as far as the quality of information. So I would just make sure that you don't believe everything you read and instead sort of look at the source. Okay,
1: good. Thank you. Uh, Anything, Brandon, to add? No, I think those are
3: great resources. And then uh, everything is evolving from a legal standpoint. So stay dialed in and uh, speak to your local county officials on this one because they're the ones who are generally the repository for the vaccine as well.
1: Okay. Uh, Betsy, did we miss any questions for the doctor, or Brandon, before we let them uh, go uh, turn off their cameras and go about their day?
5: Nope. Looks like you covered everything.
1: Okay. Great. Well, thank you, doctor. Thank you, Brandon. You're welcome to stay on, uh, but you're also welcome to, I know uh, you have some appointments coming up, doctor. So I I appreciate your time very much. It's great having you both on. Um, uh, We appreciate it very much. My pleasure.
2: Thank you. Thank
1: Thank you. All right. So we're going to shift a little bit to our Lansing team, talk about some legislative issues. And uh, in doing that, I did want to mention that uh, hopefully today our registration for our capital conference is going to open. We had it all set to open today, but we are having some technical issues. So um, our our CapCon, it's March and mid-March. I believe it's 15th and 16th. I should have wrote those dates down, um, but uh, I'm pretty sure, it's, I know it's mid-March. So anyways, uh, our registration will be open uh, for that, uh, hopefully today. So feel free to go to our website at MML.org and you can register for that. We have a bunch of different pricing options. We have group rates, uh, and a, an array of uh, kind of a whole menu of different options that, that you can meet you best meet the needs of your community. So um, let's talk yeah, a little just, bit of, go ahead, Chris. Just,
4: just following up on, on the, the first segment of the show here, you know, one of the things that's coming as well, there was, you know, the federal government did do, and we'll talk about this a little later in our in our segment here, uh, but the federal government did do a, a stimulus package right at the end of the year. Now, none of that money really is direct impact for local governments and in, uh, in the state, but there is funding. We talked about vaccine distribution and some of that. So we're going to have a lot of conversations, I know, in this first probably 60 days of the new legislative term. About you know some of the dollars, federal dollars that are available to help get testing out, uh, you know additional testing uh, support and vaccine support for distributing vaccines. So I think that's going to be important as we, as we kind of move into this this space where we're we're actively distributing the vaccine to residents of Michigan as we move through the phases. Those dollars are going to be critical and, and seeing those move, uh, you know hopefully here within the next month or two.
1: So, Chris, why don't you go ahead and talk, as John's figuring out his audio, why don't you go ahead and talk about the the lame duck? Uh, you just posted a wrap-up, um, a, a wrap-up, a long blog explaining everything and what governor approved and what she didn't approve, either by a straight veto
4: or a, I think you, what you call the pocket veto, and you can explain what all that is. Sure. I mean, it was, um, we kind of went into this lame duck really not knowing what it was going to be like. Certainly, uh, for folks who followed us a couple years ago, you know that it was uh the the twenty eighteen lame duck was like something we'd never seen before in terms of the amount of activity, so we we kind of had that as the high water mark and went, okay, we don't expect things to exceed that and and we didn't, but I think it was a lot busier than than most folks expected we had uh we had comments from the administration from the two leaders, you know it's gonna be a lame lame duck and and uh you know focus on um on COVID only legislation, there's no reason to do anything other than COVID related, and I think we did see, uh, um, you know, and, and certainly Harrison and Jen saw this, you know, uh, you know, a ton of pieces of legislation that just moved uh, regardless of you know what was going on, had nothing to do with COVID. Uh, you know, there was quite a bit of it that wasn't ready to move, as you saw with the the number of vetoes the governor did. There's your dog, Matt. <laughs> I see them. <that. laughs> um, Oh, and Aunt, oh wow! Look at that—it's a parade. So, you know, it was it was a lot busier than we expected, but it was also fairly contained. I mean, we certainly had uh, the amount of activity happen in very short spurts. We saw the House with their where they lost a whole week due to COVID exposures for members. Uh, you saw the Senate only doing partial work weeks when they were in. Um, so, really, by the time we got to it was really one week of full activity between the two chambers, uh, where you saw a lot happening back and forth, and then it kind of came to an end that that Monday before Christmas, uh, in terms of the final action from the House. And really, Arizona, that was on the one bill, uh, the the COVID employment issue we were just talking about, uh, was the main reason because they had to get the the constitutional required five days in each chamber out of the way for that bill. So it was, uh, you know, we saw a lot of good stuff happen. Uh, I think. Jen, Jen, will talk about it, but you know our our biggest issue on the the remote open meetings. But uh, you know it it was it was an interesting lame duck, to say the least. Right. Well, as, and I'll
1: let Jed speak. But as you said, summarizing your blog that just got posted this morning, there were three hundred new bills introduced during the lame duck period. A total of four hundred two bills became law throughout the whole course of the whole year, with one hundred and fifty eight of those four hundred two being finalized just during lame duck. So. That's a lot of work to squeeze in over a three week period of time. Um, let's go ahead, uh, Jen. I know one of the issues we were working on related directly to COVID was the, the Open Meetings Act issue. Uh, go ahead and talk about that and, and other issues that you wanted to mention.
5: Sure, so we were able to extend that uh, no reason remote meeting uh, capability that was going to sunset December 31st um, to the end of March. Um, And so we are um, here right at the beginning of this new term jumping back in and um, looking at um, any tweaks that we weren't able to get done before. um, Some language that we think may have been taken out that wasn't meant to in that first bill 1108 um, and and some other things we'd like to do uh, as well. So uh, that's one issue that we ended with and are jumping right back into. you know, first thing when we get started here this week again.
1: So what does that stand now? They can meet now virtually if they so choose between now I think it's the end of March.
5: So folks are going to need to talk to their municipal attorneys uh, because, yes, um, no reason virtual meetings till the end of March is allowable through the law. Um, There's also some wording that was added at the last minute in the House about if you choose to meet, in person, you need to follow um, these additional steps, which include social distancing, you know, mass CDC guidelines, as well as uh, making sure that you are cleaning um, whatever meeting facility you're using um, in a a particular way as well. Um, But there's some question, uh, we've gotten a lot of questions around if the DHHS orders saying um, meeting gatherings uh, or gatherings are not allowed unless you're in the same household, how does that impact this new law? Um, and so, you know, most of the, the attorneys that I have spoken to said that the DHHS orders um, uh, overrule um, that little portion there so you should not be meeting in person until the dhhs orders uh, but again uh, if you have questions about that if you have a council or meetings that want to be in person you need to be working with your municipal attorney on um, the interpretation of what that means
4: i just want to add matt here this is one where uh, i think jen and our whole team really appreciates the michigan association of municipal attorneys and their involvement and their assistance with this I you know, our own legal counsel, Chris Johnson, and and folks from the municipal attorneys group worked hand in hand with Jen really throughout the last six months of this year, uh, last year to to get the the legislation where we got it. There's still other things we want to change, and and we obviously expect additional legislation on this. That that's the gift that keeps on giving to Jen on this one.
5: Yeah. Well, and to, to add what Chris was talking about with Lame Duck, you know, not knowing who was going to be in session what week because of COVID outbreaks in the house and with certain staff and things like that, it was like drinking for a fire from a fire hose because all of a sudden it'd be turned on full blast and we had to go, go, go. And then next thing you knew, um, it was a complete standstill because one chamber wasn't open or a committee couldn't happen. So it was this weird stop and go and everything was, you know, very reactionary. Um, and so hopefully getting going here this uh this new year uh, that that <laughs> process will not be the same
4: well and that's something i think you know when we looked at a lot of the activity and, and the remote nature of things right now obviously it's a very different atmosphere i think for our team in terms of that lobbying the legislature during a lame duck period we're all used to 12 14 16 hour days standing on the tiles or sitting in the gallery Working legislators, talking to them, talking to our colleagues, uh, other other association lobbyists, other lobbyists. Um, this was a much different, a much different uh, way to advocate. And so there were times when you saw stuff happening that things would just pop up, uh, and you saw that uh, you know in some of the pieces of legislation that that did move. Um, you know, and I put it in my blog where things were. I think John had an issue where it was brought up, uh, no committee hearing boom it's on the floor and it's moving and it's in the next chamber uh the following tuesday and gone uh so you know we saw this a couple of times uh, and it was it it made things um, i think a little more difficult from an advocacy standpoint so uh, we appreciate those members who were able to engage right away and jump in with us and and certainly the relationships we have like with the municipal attorneys group to to get assistance and and working on some of these bills with other experts
1: Okay. We have, uh looks like we have John back. I do want to talk to him. I know you've been, John, you've been following closely the federal stimulus issue. They did pass a big package. Uh, the question earlier was, you know, how, is there going to be additional money coming uh, for our communities and particularly, you know, some of our small businesses? We have our MEDC small business grant that our, our foundation, Michigan Municipal League Foundation is administering, but as shown by that, we had over 8,000 applicants for that $10 million fund and and we're only going to be able to give up about 650. So the need is so immense out there. Um, what, what what has happened and what do you see happening now that we have a new presidential administration and uh, particularly a new Senate majority, possibly in House majority as well?
6: Well, so first, can you hear me better? All right. All right. Yeah. So, so second, let's unpack that two minute question. Um, so... You know, I'll start with uh, some of the federal stimulus stuff, and you know, we we posted a blog on it the other day. There, there is some small business help in there. Um, so out of that nine hundred billion dollars, there's three hundred and twenty-five billion of that specifically dedicated to small business. Um, there's about forty-five billion that's dedicated to some transportation funding, particularly around transit systems. Uh, There's about $55 billion for public schools, um, money for uh, supplemental nutrition assistance programs. There's actually money in there for broadband as well, uh, which will be interesting to see how that sort of rolls out at the end of the day. Um, But the other thing that happened along with the federal stimulus was the uh, budget passed at the federal level too. And I only bring that up because there was a, a one really interesting component of that that I think is really, really critical to Michigan that I want to point out. And we have for years organizationally advocated for uh, at least the, the continuance of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative as it is at its current funding levels, which is about $300 million. Um, Senator Stabenow was able to secure an amendment within, the federal budget that between now and 2026 that's going to go from 300 million to 475 million which is significant um so i bring that up simply because you know we we've talked about everything from asian carp to the sioux locks uh and how important you know uh the great lakes are to us and then when we think about some of the issues that Harrisana is involved in with shoreline erosion and those types of things there is some potential now over the next few years with that infusion of money, depending on how they decide to prioritize it, uh, could be really beneficial to to our state. So, you know, I'll, um, I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. That's some of the high level stuff on what happened, uh, you know, before uh, the legislature broke, or I guess I should say before new session started. I think what we're looking at now as uh, we have a, a new administration here starting in the next couple of days um, And actually, I read a report this morning that looks like Biden or or President-elect Biden may at some point uh, this week roll out in more detail his idea of a next stimulus plan, which is going to include dollars for state and federal aid, as well as potentially more um, checks to individuals, more money for unemployment uh, insurance, maybe some paid sick time uh, incorporated into that. Uh, so there's going to be a number of things in there that will likely either get to our communities directly if passed, or at least to components or or certain sectors within our communities that will have a direct benefit that may help us as well. So I think there's a lot of positive news there uh, in terms of, of what the potential could be. Uh, Obviously the things that are going on in DC right now are gonna dictate a a number of things over the coming days and and weeks and and time will determine that. But I think the timeline we're on is probably pretty aggressive um, and will likely coincide with the expiration of the extended unemployment benefits which is early march that was in the current stimulus package that just passed
1: okay so uh, obviously you know getting uh, direct flexible spending for, for our cities was was a key goal of ours throughout the summer with our partners at national league of cities are you saying john that that seems maybe a little more likely now with the new administration coming in
6: well i th- i think it seems more likely that uh the magic eight picks up his <laughs> I picked up the magic eight ball earlier today and it didn't give me an answer that I like so I'm gonna not pick that up right now um, I, I think the, says the yes the, the potential <laughs> for a more serious conversation is absolutely uh in play okay there are still some of some some issues that are gonna potentially crop up as you try and collect votes and do some other things but I don't think you're gonna see some of the the, the standoffishness of of what we've seen for for local aid in the same you know kind of uh, numbers that we've seen previously because this this has not been, and I don't want it to sound like it is a partisan issue. There has been support on both sides of the aisle for state and local funding. So this is not just a democratic priority um, being blocked by Republicans. Uh, so I want to be very clear about that. This does have bipartisan support. There's going to be some questions both on the level. In ter- of funding? And also, are there other things that need to come along with it, which traditionally kind of the trade-off has been liability protection for businesses uh, and what is the extent of the deal that's that may be able to be reached around that? I think there's without question uh, our hope uh, and our optimism around a plan and a package passing that will include state and local aid is much higher today than it was you know even two or, or three weeks ago
1: okay all right uh good uh, a lot of stuff uh, going on there so uh, looking forward uh chris i believe you said told me that the uh, 101st legislature starts this week i believe it's the 13th uh, what are some things we can generally expect from this group i know we have a number of uh um, locally uh, uh local officials that were elected to state state offices so we're hopeful that those people that their experience at the local level will translate into uh, legislation that's beneficial to our communities. What's your general feeling, uh, you know, going into this week with the new legislature
4: starting? Well, yeah, there's always a sense of optimism when you've got uh, when you've got a new group of legislators coming in. Uh, we we were able to start meeting a couple of them last week. We have more meetings scheduled this week. Uh, of the 28 new House members, uh, nine of them come from municipal backgrounds uh you know uh, we have a DDA director we have city council members so it's a good you know it's a good mix republican and democrat um and you know folks we're already talking with are very engaged and aware of the league's key issues which is also important i mean it's good to start it's good to start uh not have to start at ground zero with with people explaining what revenue sharing is and the importance of headline proposal a so uh you know we're working to build up that that uh, that relationship, um, again, doing it remotely. So over Zoom, which is always a little different than uh, being able to meet someone face to face. So uh, we'll move through that uh, this year and, and these first couple of months, the legislature does come in Wednesday to do their uh, official first day of session. Uh, we'll have the speaker elected at that point. We will see what the, the committee names are in the house, um, but we won't have those committee memberships announced probably until next week. Uh, that's all up to the speaker on when he announces uh, those committees and, and the membership of those committees so that's uh kind of the next big step uh we know friday is the consensus revenue conference so uh, that'll dictate important. the budget right uh, yep that's when the uh the house and fiscal house and senate fiscal agencies and treasury will set the baseline for what the governor's executive recommendation will be based on Uh, That will probably come out the first part of February, right after uh, Governor Whitmer does her state of the state speech, which I believe is scheduled for the 27th. So the the last half of this month will be very busy as we move through uh, the organization of the chamber, the announcement of the committees, uh, the budget, and the state of the state. So we're going to see a lot happening here in the next couple of weeks. Okay.
1: So let's go around the table here real quick and, and kind of touch on some of the issues you guys are focused on moving into this year. Um, I, I remember who talked last, so we'll go with Harisana just because she's the first on my screen.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I would say the most tangible one for our members and that we've been hitting on for the past couple of years is high waters. That is an issue that we've been dealing with for years now, considering consistently rising lake levels on all of our Great Lakes and Lake St. Clair included. Uh, We did crest last year, but what we're seeing in the data shows that the levels are still going to ebb and flow and not go all the way back to where they were uh, pre-2017 years. So we need to be cognizant that what we're dealing with is something that we're handling for the long run. And so that means we need funding to do remediation work. If folks remember way, way back before the pandemic even began, we did have an appropriation on the governor's desk for $5 million to go out to public infrastructure and local communities that are impacted by high waters. Obviously with the pandemic, those dollars went elsewhere to more needed initiatives, but the cost of remediation and armoring and doing all the things necessary to make sure that we can retain our shorelines is still compounding. And so 5 million will likely be the minimum of what we're looking for moving forward. Uh, Friday and and other budget conversations coming in the future can be really, really important to us. And I think we can be really excited to know that this is an issue that we're not gonna have to start on ground zero for. I think it's pretty apparent for us, especially as we were home during the pandemic, that the state of our shorelines. And over the last term, we had a lot of great work done with Representative Aller, Representative Tate, really illustrate how you know the impact of shoreline erosion is not just, you know, an issue for millionaires on the coastline, but they're everyday Michiganders who've lived in homes for generations and have their primary homes right on the lakefront that are damaged. And in addition, you know, the municipal infrastructure of roads. Uh, viewers, water treatment centers that are right on the coastline that are 20 feet away from being inundated. Those are all issues that are going to continue, that have continued. And so we're really going to be looking for not just opportunities for funding uh, to make those changes, but also watching closely on the legislation that's going to come around regarding, you know, beach nourishment, regarding wherever, you know, where we should dredge, zoning, all those different conversations too, because that has long-term impacts. And we wanna be really careful that while we're doing things to retain the structure of our community, we're being conscious of the environmental structures that are there and we don't cause any additional long-term damage in the future. Another issue that's coming up that's been ongoing for many, many years for our members is part 115. We're hearing that we're- Which is, what's that? Part 115 is the solid waste materials management policy for the state of Michigan. Okay. touched in 25 years. And so for the past now six plus years, ourselves, the Townships Association, many environmental partners, and Eagle have all gotten together to discuss, you know, how can we make recycling more of a core part of materials management in our communities? And on top of that, how can we give our local governments autonomy to do what's needed where they are, and also releasing the funding that's available to them um, through Renew Michigan to make that happen? So we did a lot of hard work in the past, in the last cycle to negotiate, have conversations. The legislation made it almost almost all the way there, excuse me, to Ways and Means, and then did not make it into the Senate. So we're starting over again, but all the same partners are still at the table. We all really wanna get this done because it is a significant overhaul for us as a state, but it's putting us in a direction of sustainability and environmental viability and something that really should be cognizant on, especially as we talk about community wealth and building our communities for long, long-term success.
1: Okay, great. Um, Jen, what are you, uh, what's the big things that you're looking at? You mentioned the Open Meetings Act already. I'm sure you'd be keeping an eye on that.
5: Yep, yep. So definitely the Open Meetings Act. Um, But one hot topic at the, well, all of last term, but especially during Lame Duck, was the gravel mining issue. And I'm putting in uh, the chat a great article that was done in Bridge Magazine. It's a little lengthy, um, but folks, uh, if you can read this when you talk to your legislator you know, going forward, um, this is one of the first um, pieces I've seen that actually talks to some of the talking points we were fighting against. Um, but there was no data to back up that, um, that Michigan needs more aggregate for it, its roads um, when actually we are the number one expert um, exporter of gravel and and small pebbles. Um, And so this was a great article, but it tell this, this issue is going to start out hot here, right? Again, um, first thing this, this year. And so um, I, we at the league, you know, we are looking forward to being at the table and and, and actually being able to negotiate um, this issue um, versus last time it was, you know, check the box. We had local government in the room. I think hopefully this time we can sit down and actually have some fruitful conversations that lead to good policy that help uh, both sides uh, get to, you know, an end point. So it's not going away Um, Anticipate short-term rentals will be back again this year um, as well as other preemption um,
4: type issues
0: so okay I will um, say Matt
4: this is one this is one year where one lame duck where uh, I really want to give kudos to the team uh, and the members who engaged on these we avoided a lame duck we avoided any preemption efforts during this lame duck uh, which was you know it's significant considering some of the issues that were out there and some of the things we were battling uh, certainly short-term rental and the aggregate mining at the path of the list, but there were a number of other preemption issues that, that we were able to to keep uh, at bay. so I think that was a you know a, a big victory for uh, for local government during this.
1: yeah, so often we talk about the things we got past, but a lot of times the victory is things that never came forward or never got got through that's always the toughest the toughest thing. Uh, we did have a question I wanted to follow up with you I think Chris about uh, UIA, which I believe is unemployment. Something or another. Um, can you kind of address that
4: question? Sure. The question was just on, you know, some of the extensions of unemployment insurance, uh, the three hundred dollars, and where do the costs lie? Uh, we don't have the information yet. We've put out some feelers to the department uh, over the over the holiday break and have not heard back. We'll do some follow up on that and get as much information as we can out uh, out to members. Uh, I mean, we had some questions come in previously on work share and is work share reauthorized? That was reauthorized in the stimulus bill. Um, so again, it, it just comes down to you know, what is the, how is the department implementing those? And again, the time period is so short uh, until this March. So seeing some federal extension occur uh, and, and how will that Im- impact? And, and then we're gonna have some level of state appropriation that has to occur for all these federal dollars and federal programs as well. So there's gonna be a lot of discussion of this over the next few weeks. Okay.
1: Uh, one of the things we haven't really talked about much, but it isn't, we probably will when spring comes and the things start warming up and, and there's more potholes in the roads is roads. Uh, John, I know infrastructure is one of the things you can be keeping an eye on. Uh, of course, this was all the talk this time last year before COVID hit was infrastructure roads. What's the latest and what are we hoping uh, to see this year?
6: Yeah, there was uh talk for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's actually hard to imagine that it was nearly two years ago or almost exactly two years ago that the governor rolled out, you know, her plan to raise gas tax 45 cents. And as, as suspected uh, you know, nothing has moved since then uh, as it, as it relates to a a tax increase um, or a fee increase. But what did happen at the beginning of, of last year, so early 2020 Uh, was the governor rolled out a bonding proposal for state roads. So it doesn't impact local roads. She doesn't have that authority. We've talked about that numerous times on here, but those dollars are going to be rolling out starting this spring. So it is very likely we could see uh, the volume of construction actually up this year uh, as we think about state infrastructure. You know, there's still an an issue as it relates to local infrastructure, both on the roadside and on the water side. and I think on the roadside, if if I was going to be just completely honest, I think it's going to be a big challenge, especially in the first half of this year, to try and go and and get something done. Um, on the water side, though, I do think there's an avenue and an opportunity really to, to move forward with some, some dollars there, uh, primarily focused on what the governor proposed in her, her clean water plan towards the end of last year, which was approximately $500 million that would be used both on the drinking water and on the wastewater side, uh, split about evenly at about 250 million and 250 million apiece, um, And so we, we anticipate that that will be uh, a priority of the governor again, and maybe laid out uh, both within her budget proposal and in the state, of, state address possibly. Uh, and something that we will follow very closely because there are a number of programs associated with that that our members could benefit from. Um, some are directly tied to federal dollars, others is, is tied to state dollars, uh, but there's a, a wider range of things, everything from asset management right down to, to capital improvement projects uh, that could be included in that and something that that at the end of the day would be very beneficial to our members, although I would say that is a start, right? I mean, when we look at uh, the, the total needs in the state around water infrastructure in particular, it's much higher uh, than that 500 million. And I think the governor and the administration has recognized that. I think the legislatures has recognized that. The question is, is if this was to pass, what will they do next? And and we'll have to continue to stay on them much like we have on the on the roadside. Okay, thank you guys. Well,
1: I, I do have one more. I know Jen, you have one more issue you wanna bring up. We, we're way over on our time as normal, but this is, uh, we had uh, two special guests. So I think it's okay to, to extend it. Uh, Jen, you wanna talk a little bit about um, an issue that you're following.
5: Yeah, so I get so wrapped up because we're always playing defense on these preemption issues. But something that we're actually actually proactively working on that um, started last fall and has some great momentum, I think, here this new year, is um, the issue of housing. Um, there's a housing coalition that's been put together. Um, that's working with uh, the chambers, the the home builders, Habitat, um, a lot of the nonprofits and local government um, on identifying housing issues and what we can do going forward to help provide um, affordable and workforce housing. Uh, And so I think you'll be seeing a lot more of that. It's been identified as an issue um, with a number of legislators, both sides of the aisles, Urban and rural. I think everyone is being able is hearing from their constituents about um, housing issues, and so that's something that we're proactively going to be working on. Um, and I think it's really exciting because uh, you know we've identified that as a priority um, issue that needs to be looked at.
1: All right, I uh, got one question. We're here at the end. Any work on the renewed work share program? Does anyone know about that? Oh John, no, Chris just responded. I guess maybe it was just a panelist. Sorry about that.
4: <laughs> uh, no, just. This is certainly one, again, as we talk, the, the federal stimulus did extend it, uh, through March. Uh, so we're working with UIA and our contacts over there to get information on how the, how the state is going to be implementing, uh, you know, is the state going to take advantage of it? Like, uh, they did this last summer, um, in terms of for budget relief. So we'll, we'll get some information on that and we'll share with members as soon as we hear back from the department.
1: Okay. Well, good. Um, thank you. Anything else from the team before we wrap up here? All right. Well, thank you guys. Um, Thank you to our guests, uh, Brandon uh, Fournier and uh, Dr. Bobby uh, Makamala from the City of Flint and also the Michigan State Medical Society President uh, it was great having them on, talk about the vaccines and, and issues that our communities are dealing with and some suggestions on um, best practices moving forward. So thank you guys. Our next uh, Monday, or not Monday, morning Live, Live with the League is uh, scheduled for uh, two weeks from today. So I think that's the uh, whatever Monday that is. Um, and I did get correct on the dates for our capital conference, March 15th, 16th. I did follow up with that. Those are correct. So thank you guys for joining us and we'll see everyone again in two weeks.
6: Thanks, everybody. Thank you.
0: This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.mml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.